You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Restore us from our suffering. So remember, God is not a forgetful God. God is not like us, that He has a limited capacity, a limited memory. What we have here, we have to remember that the book of Lamentations is really us just diving into somebody's journal entry, somebody's secret diary, if you will. Them crying out, them pouring their hearts out to God, and we get to have a front page row of seeing what's going on. They're crying out in human words, in human capacity, God, remember And so this is what you might call anthropomorphic language, meaning human-type language. It doesn't indicate that God is lacking in His memory. But this is language that we understand as human beings. So God, remember, we are now widows. We're orphans. We're fatherless. Jerusalem is really calling upon God to see how now they are by very definition, the very people that the Lord has openly mentioned He cares for. Widows, orphans, the fatherless. You see this laid out through all of Scripture. You can see that. I'll give you one example. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. And so now the people have kind of gone from these enemies, if you will. There's been this lamenting of seeing how they are just the enemies of God to now they are in this position of being the very people or qualified as the people that God should be paying attention to and caring for. Remember us now. Remember our harsh conditions, verses 4-5, through under Babylon. Jerusalem is wanting rest. They're wanting some sort of reprieve, but they're getting none. Verses 6 and 7, remember the iniquities that we are bearing here. Let me bring some clarity here. Jerusalem is not shift-blaming. They're not saying we are being held responsible for the sins of those who are us. And they're not saying that they are not free from sin either. Verse 16, we know the author here is saying we are responsible for our own sin. But here's what's happening. Jerusalem has fell into the same footsteps as their forefathers. And instead of correcting the sins of their fathers, they embraced it for themselves, and now they are bearing the iniquities of their forefathers. Jerusalem wants God to remember that they are experiencing the full weight of their sin as it was passed down. They should have, they should have followed in repentance and worship just like King Josiah did. In 2 Chronicles, God's wrath, His discipline, His anger was aiming towards His people and then Josiah led the nation to repentance and worship and then God relented. He pulled back and said, I'm not going to pour it out on you. But those after you, I'm going to be pouring it out on because they are not going to repent. Had Jerusalem repented and worshipped the Lord, they would not be bearing these iniquities. So remember us, God. Remember, now we get it. We got the full weight of the world on our shoulders. The full weight of responsibility of sin is upon us. We're feeling it. And now we are slaves. 
who we once ruled over, who worked for us, who were slaves for us. Now the table, everything has flipped. Now we give to those we were once over. They are now our masters. This is misery. God, remember how you saved your people from slavery. How you pulled Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. You're a God who frees. Remember verses 11 through 13. Your design, your design has now been broken. This design for social order has been broken. You see that in the very explicit descriptions here of women, of princes, of elders, of young men, of boys who are now staggering. So really the proper value and dignity of people is completely broken. Completely broken. And this social order does have some theological implications as well. It's now diminished. Each role in the kingdom, each role in Jerusalem, is a reflection of God, His promises of what He is doing. God doesn't just establish a temple, a a king and priests and all of these things just out of random and for no reason. He establishes a specific order to reflect Himself. For example, a king reflects the King of Heaven. The temple reflects the holy sanctuary of the Lord. The elders reflect the justice of God being poured out to the people. There's purpose in the design of God. And this whole social order that was very sacred, even down to the buildings, has been diminished and devalued and made a mockery of. It's now all in chaos. This city that once hosted the house of prayer for all the nations has now become a laughing stock among the nations. Discipline does something to us. It takes our ego, it takes our pride, and it strips it completely down really to a pitiful state, to humility. And this position is where we go from enemy or foe to really humble servant. Part of discipline. Jerusalem came to the point of no longer fighting back. They knew now that they were like orphans, widows, fatherless. They've reached that point of going, we just need you and we need you to see us. If you're finding yourself maybe in a position of being disciplined, then you probably ought to take some time to evaluate the process where you're at within that discipline. Here's what I mean. Are you still spewing venom and anger towards the Lord? Like when we are caught in sin or we're being disciplined for sin, whether in an individual or a corporate level, there's that initial, ugh, frustration like how dare you and we just start becoming angry with God shaking our fist at God spewing venom at God is that where you're at or have you finally been worn down (laughs) worn down to this pitiful state where you can't be angry but all you can do is just say God don't forget me remember me restore me And that latter part is a good place to be. 
because our pride and our egos are no longer flared up and fighting against our God, but coming to Him. When sin hits the church, you begin to see really how it tears apart what God has designed. And you see that impact. It doesn't, you know, we have to understand, sin doesn't just impact you and your personal relationship with Jesus. It impacts the entire world around you. It impacts even the social order of things. I mean, think about it. If it impacts the church, you can begin to see how pastors will fail to lead, how pastors will fail to give the Word of God You can see it in the home, wives beginning to fail to follow their husbands, husbands failing to lead their homes, children beginning to rebel against their parents. And the world begins to really rule over the church and rule over the lives of the people in the church in awful ways. You see the the order turn to chaos. And so we need to be aware of the damage that can be done if we are in sin and how the Lord's discipline calls us back to right order and calls us back to Him. And so when we ask God to remember, we are not asking God because He's deficient in His memory banks and He doesn't have the ability to remember. We're asking God to remember because we are the ones who forgot. We are the ones who forgot to call upon Him in the first place. Instead of turning to Him, we forgot Him and turned to ourselves. Turned to Egypt. Turned to the surrounding nations for help. And so if you see chaos in your life, perhaps the Lord is opening your eyes to actually see Him, to call upon Him to restore the order of things. And why? Because this order of things reflects Him. Reflects His purposes reflects His character, His goodness, and ultimately His gospel. And so when we we see we have forgotten the Lord and, and beckon upon Him to remember, we find ourselves then asking for the joy and hope that we had lost, but now we desire. Verses 14 through 18. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. Restore us from the loss of hope and joy. Verse 14, this idea of the elders no longer being there. The elders would meet at the city gate and from there they would administer justice to the people. Justice is now gone. There is no justice. There is no Word of the Lord. There is no administrating God's Word to the people. Had God's Word been administered from the gate, had justice been administered from the gate, there would be opportunity for the people of God to have joy and have hope. But it's gone now. And as a result, there's a missing joy and hope in the heart. And so they're begging God, verse 15, restore the joy to our hearts. Restore it. Restore it. This one dictionary says, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, joy 
is consistently the mark both individually of the believer and corporately of the church. It is a quality and not simply an emotion grounded upon God Himself and indeed derived from Him. Joy is not just something we feel, but it is something that is grounded upon God and it is derived from God. So the people of Jerusalem are missing joy, not just emotionally, but from God and even being grounded upon God. Psalm 16.11 says, You make known to me the path of life. Your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jerusalem is no longer experiencing what Psalm 16 is talking about. There is no pleasure for them in Jerusalem. They go to Mount Zion and it's full of jackals. There's nothing there. The souls of the people of Jerusalem are depleted and they know they need to be filled with joy again. But that joy only comes from God. Nothing else. And that leads them to confession in verse 16. Woe to us for we have sinned. I bring us there in particular because that word woe. By definition it means an impassioned expression of grief and despair. An impassioned expression of grief and despair. This is like the heightened response to our sin is what they're saying. They're deeply feeling it. They're deeply grieving. They are deeply in despair. And they're moved by their sin when they should be rather moved with joy. And the result of this, what happens when you are so deeply um, grieved with sin and in despair? Your heart becomes sick. That's what they're saying. Our heart is sick. Our eyes are growing dim. The very place we would go, Mount Zion, the very place we would go for worship is given to jackals. I realize I hadn't defined what jackals are. Jackals are wolf-like creatures that just operate in packs and they are very attracted to really rotting flesh. Rather than going and hunting game, they actually prefer rotting flesh and corpses above all other foods. That's given you the imagery of this holy place. It's full of death. Full of jackals. And so Zion, in other words, has been handed over to death. Being consumed completely by it. There is no joy in their hearts. They long for it. An observation I want to make really kind of in the state of the church is that elders and pastors, elders, pastors, meaning the same thing, I would say need to be restored back to a position of administering God's Word to the people and stop being CEOs and executives of organizations. You hear what I'm saying? I mean, that's the position of the church, generally speaking, in America, in our context, in our city. And so instead of sitting at the gate and administering justice, what we're doing instead is sitting at our executive suites running a business campaign to attract more clients. 
What can we do to get more people in? And how can we keep the people in? And look, the observation is a fault of both leadership and its people. All of us as the church collectively are guilty of this. And I'm not saying this is Redeemer. I'm rebuking you. I'm just saying in general observation. I think when we speak of the church, we often speak of her in terms of comfortability, of style, of preference, and less on obedience to God's Word. We need to remain focused really on what is necessary for our souls to have relationship with God because if we're to have real joy, church, if we're going to have real hope, it will not be found really in a fog machine and amazing church programs. It's going to be found only in the Word of God. That's it. So let's be sure to check our own souls here. What is it that you want or expect from your elders, pastors, if you will? What is it that you expect from your church? Some of us demand things. Does it line with the Bible? Do you desire justice? Do you desire and want God's Word more than anything? Are you wanting, or are you wanting all the side dishes that go along with it? How are you feeling about your life? Do you feel robbed of joy in your life right now? And again, we're not just talking about the emotional aspect of joy, but also the abiding aspect of joy where your love of Jesus fuels your joy. It's not a manufactured joy. It's a real joy that comes from the heavenly places. Do you feel like the Lord is administering joy into your soul? Do you feel like He's absent? Like He's somehow just like stopped the flow of any sort of joy to your heart? And this is where the Word of God is so vital. It's so vital. I want you, if that's you, if you're kind of feeling depleted, you're feeling like your joy is robbed, you're, you're suffering to see real hope, I want you to go to your community group this week and I want you to express that. I just want you to say it to the group. Just have some courage, have some boldness. Really, if you need to just pray about it, take a deep breath because you're scared to say it, I want you to take some courage and do that. And I want you to be honest. Don't beat around the bush with it. Don't be shy about it, but just genuinely express it. And why? Because for those of us in the room who don't feel like we're depleted of joy, but maybe we're really feeling the and the hope of the Lord in our lives, we need to double down in the Word and prayer, and we need to be ready to give a hopeful answer to our brothers and sisters who are feeling like the Lord has turned the valve off of joy. And we need to give them something that's real, something that's eternal, something that's lasting, something that will revive their hearts, restore their souls. We have a responsibility as brothers and sisters to make disciples. None of us are exempt from that at all. We need the Word of God among our people in every way. And how do you feel about your sin? Do you think it's no big deal? Do you try to justify your sin before the Lord? 
Or are you able to start to see its, its heightened offense before God? If you're lacking hope and joy, it, perhaps you're stuck in seeing just how sinful you are. And so there's something that we need to understand here. We need to come to a place of saying, whoa, I am a sinner. And, and really feeling and seeing and understanding that, but it is important that we don't stay there. That that's not the place that we camp. Right? Because there is actual hope. So we need to see the depths of it, the dangers of it, the offense of our sin before God. But then we need to, on the same, at the same time, be reminded of our Savior, Jesus. If we stay camped in the woefulness of our sin, then we remain condemned. There's no encouragement and condemnation. There's no hope and condemnation. It's just like putting the shackles back on and just remaining enslaved when God is standing nearby saying, I've never shackled you back up. You can just literally walk out right now. We often do more damage to ourselves than anything. But we need to not remain in that position because it would only lead us to eternal despair and grief. But when we see our sin, what we need to do instead is recall the cross of Christ and rejoice. Rejoice that your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. This is something beautiful that I've been reading lately in Dane Ortland's book called Gentle and Lowly. He talks about Jesus interceding on our behalf. And the picture is this. Jesus is constantly administering the work of the cross that He did 2,000 years ago on our lives right now in real time in this moment. So it's not that our only hope is 2,000 years ago. Yeah, it happened 2,000 years ago, but right now, from the right hand of the Father, Jesus is constantly pouring out His blood over our sins. He's administering to us grace and mercy and joy in real time. So we need to understand what true hope and true joy is in the Lord so that we can endure when times get really hard and times when we lack this gladness of heart. Needs to see not despaired and, and sad followers of Jesus, but followers of Jesus who can grieve with real hope in Jesus. If you don't grieve with hope, then you can expect that all you'll do is grow dim in your sight, your heart will grow increasingly sick, and all you'll begin to see all around you is a cruel and wicked world that is devouring and eating up what used to be a real place of worship within your souls. We have to turn to Him. We must turn to Him. And as we dive into God's Word and recall His goodness for us, let us make an appeal to Him to fully restore our souls. Verses 19-22 through But You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Let me read that verse again. But You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? 
Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. Hear our appeal for You to restore. Verses 19-22. through Here's the appeal. The appeal is first and foremost made to the Lord who reigns. Verse, 15, or verse 19. This is important to see. This is the only verse in the chapter that the author is not referring to himself or to the corporate group of people. This verse alone is attributed, it's exclusively about God. That's what makes it so beautiful. The picture we see here in this verse is a picture of a supreme, eternal ruler who is subject to no one and will forever rule over all generations. He is not bound in any way. God essentially watches enemies like Egypt and like Babylon come and go like it's nothing. He remains forever. And so Jerusalem has reached this point in their desperation, in their lamenting, that where they are now rightly confessing God's power and authority. Prior, they had sought help from Egypt. They sought sympathy from Babylon, but they found no help. They found no sympathy. And now they are finally seeing right. Your help only comes from the Lord, and you will only find sympathy from the Lord. So they make an appeal to the One who reigns forever. And they make verse 20 for the Lord to respond. This is not an accusation. These questions of, you know, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us? That's not accusatory language. It is an appeal for God to act and to save. You see this as well in the Psalms. God is not responding in this lament. You don't see a dialogue between uh, Jeremiah and God here. It's really God is kind of this lament and so you kind of wonder where is God and maybe God why aren't you speaking in this moment that's kind of the feeling of Lamentations 5 but we have to understand this it's not that God is sitting idle and God is just not speaking because he's mean but God has already spoken he's already spoken the people of Jerusalem just need to cling to what God has already said and trust his word God is gracious and kind throughout redemptive history, throughout different times of the Bible, of showing up and speaking His Word, reminding His people. But God doesn't just need to sit there and do it every, every millisecond, call from the clouds and give a word from above. He has spoken. The problem is not His lack of speaking. It's our lack of hearing and obeying. And so there's then this, verses 21 and 22, this appeal to restore and renew. Restore. It's this idea of fixing what is broken by taking it back to what it was originally designed to be. Jerusalem, you were not designed to be enslaved to enemies. You were not designed to be wallowing in your sin. You were not designed to be grieving in despair and without hope. And so Jerusalem is asking God, restore us to proper Restore this city back to what it was designed to be originally. And He calls upon Him to renew our days of old. 
To renew really is to reestablish after an interruption. I like it put that way. To reestablish after an interruption, to give life or to refresh. So Jerusalem is essentially asking the Lord to give life to His people again. Like in the days of old, days of which they were devoted only to Him. This isn't some sort of fallen or sinful reminiscence. Hey, I remember the good old days. That's not what it was. This is a longing to worship again. That's the desire. And then he kind of ends on this really negative note. God, restore us, renew us. But I mean, if you've rejected us, okay. This idea of rejection here is is a very state, it's a real emotional statement. Again, don't forget, we're talking about real humans dealing with real suffering and sorrow in real time in a very human way. I mean, at one time, I mean, you think about it, if you were to journal your despair and your sorrows, you could probably see times where you're just really angry with God, frustrated with God, and then all of a sudden it's like you're preaching a little sermon to yourself about hope in God, and then you begin to doubt and question yourself again. Well, I mean, if you really want to do that, God. And that's what we're dealing with here. Some manuscripts later on actually take verse 21 and put it again after verse 22. Just to remind the people, yes, this book ends on a negative note, but that is not the end of hope. It doesn't end with Lamentations 5.22. No, there's a greater story to come. When we can see our sin clearly, we can see our God clearly. That makes sense. And I'm not saying go on and sin and do those things so that you can understand God more. Like Paul says, go on sinning so that grace may increase. What I, what I am getting at is when we begin to see our brokenness more clearly and feel the gravity of it and understand its depths and how big it really is, we begin, we begin to see how big and awesome our God really is. If we see our sin small, we see God small. If we see our sin as big, we see God as big. So to say woe, the sin ultimately leads us to a you are holy posture before the Lord. If we have no sense of woe to our sin, we will never have any sense of you are holy to the Lord. And when we're properly postured before the Lord, we then have a proper perspective of His supremacy, of His rule, of His power, of His never-ending throne of grace and how He endures the generations. Sometimes when we're dealing with grief, it feels as though really God is absent. He's not talking. He's not acknowledging our existence. He's not acknowledging our pain. He's just cruel because He's not doing anything. But we know that He's not. He's not ignoring us. He's not quiet. He's not unaware. The book of Hebrews tells us that God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus. And so where do we go to see and to hear and to experience our Lord? Through His Word. Through the Bible. The Bible informs us exactly how God is restoring us, how He's restoring His people. How else would we know? Just by feeling and intuition and what we think is right? No, we can't trust ourselves. We have to trust something that is concrete and true and perfect and sure. 
And Jerusalem was restored under the leadership of Cyrus. We have to understand that. Cyrus, king of Persia, ends up helping Jerusalem come back and seeing the city rebuilt. We're going to see this as we dive into Esther and we dive into the book of Ezra. We'll begin to see God fulfilling what He said in the book of Lamentations. We'll see it together. But here's the thing. The Davidic kingdom will never fully recover. It'll never fully recover like the good old days. And so we have to ask, when it comes to restoration and Jerusalem and the temple and the social order of the city, what is the ultimate goal of restoration in the Bible? What is the ultimate goal? When we flip the pages back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, we see in the beginning that God created. What did He not create? He didn't create nations. He didn't create kings. He didn't create a priesthood. He didn't create those things. Right? He created the world and everything therein. And then He created us, people, in His image and in His likeness. And so where did these kings and nations come from, if you will? They come as a result of the fall. You see then a people beginning to form. You see people splintering off, hating one another, forming their own nations, coming against one another, borders start to uh, wall up, if you will. And so God then, instead of rejecting all of this, He gives His people a king and a kingdom. And He shows His people throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Bible, throughout history, that He has a bigger story of restoration in mind. God's purpose throughout the entire Bible is that He would restore the broken, sinful heart of man. That's the whole point. And so the Bible tells us that is fully accomplished, perfectly accomplished in the Gospel of Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, the disciples ask Jesus. Jesus has already died. He's resurrected. He's been hanging around for quite a while. And in Acts chapter 1, he's about to ascend. <coughs> he's about to ascend. In Acts 1, verse 6, the disciples look at him and they're like, okay, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So you can see that even then, after Jesus died on the cross, the idea was that, hey, remember the Old Testament when God said he was going to restore everything? perfectly so are you going to make that happen and go take the throne downtown or what but jesus doesn't do that he understands what they're saying it's much bigger than the temple in downtown jerusalem it's much bigger than the levitical priesthood it's much bigger than him ruling a physical nation here on earth it's a much bigger thing than that Jesus comes to perfectly restore the kingdom that was lost on earth. Jesus is the king who establishes his throne forever. And this is the king that David and Solomon were longing for, were desiring for. But the way that his kingdom would be established would not be the way that we think it should be here on earth. He establishes a greater kingdom, a stronger kingdom than could ever be imagined. And so the Gospel is this, that Jesus restores sinners back to God. He restores our hearts that were broken and sinful back to God. He will take our bodies that are broken 
And He promises to fully restore them back to perfect life and health in the second resurrection. Just as Jesus physically rose from the grave, so too will rise with Him bodily. Our relationship to one another has also been restored in the Gospel of Jesus. Not only in the now, but for all eternity. And the glorious city of God that was reflected here on earth, known as Jerusalem, will be perfectly restored in heaven with a gold that never tarnishes, stones that never fall, with people who are perfectly pure in heart, offering worship that never ceases day and night to a king who will never lose his throne. Jesus is not done working. He's working right now. The sorrow and the grief that we see in a sinful and broken world ought to take us to a deep, worshipful longing for God to act, for Him to return, to take this broken life and make it perfectly whole again. The Gospel is in motion. It's working. It's in progress. And one day it will be fully complete when Jesus returns. And here's the good news as well. The Gospel assures us, it assures us that the Lord will not utterly reject us forever. That's the big question mark that the author has here in Lamentations. Unless you utterly reject us forever, but the Gospel says you are not utterly rejected forever. In fact, you are forever accepted into the kingdom. And so that takes a despairing heart and gives it life and joy. And so until Jesus returns or we go to Him, this side of heaven, we will experience moments of, or, or seasons of sorrow and despair and grief. I mean, we see it every day. And when it comes and when it's upon us, what is it that we're hoping for in those times? What are we longing for? We need to really ask that question. If you remember the story I mentioned at the front end about my Netflix special, Russ Valley, where I get a lot of my resources. The father who lost his daughter, who came to my call, who owns the business, who wanted that vehicle restored after his daughter passed away. What do you think would have been the better hope for him? The car to be restored? Or again, for his daughter's life to be restored and to be with him? I mean, I think we know that. A million times over, he would choose his daughter. There is despair this side of heaven. There is loss and pain and suffering this side of heaven. But there is a greater hope. His daughter will rise again. <laughs> we will all rise again. But where will we be going? To whom will we be going? What are we longing for? Who are we longing for? What you put your hope in determines your joy and it is the very thing that receives your worship in life. What you put your hope in determines your joy and ultimately receives your worship. If your hope is in a rusted sword, your hope doesn't go very far. That's what you worship. That's your joy. 
but it will fail? Or is it in someone who is far greater, who is eternal? Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not put hope in this world, but hope in Him who is far greater and is beyond this place. Do not allow your eyes to grow dim, your hearts to grow sick, but rather be renewed in your hearts by the One who is giving life to your mortal flesh and will bring it to perfect completion in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, on that great and glorious day. So let's look up, believer, and behold, our salvation is coming. Restoration is near. Let's pray. Father, thank You that this life isn't the end. That the end of the story is far greater and far hopeful. That we know that You are making us perfect. That You are giving us life. That You are giving us real joy and real love. And Father, we have access to it right now. If we ground ourselves in You, we find real joy. And joy that constantly is just flowing into our hearts, into our minds. And it then impacts us in every way. Father, it causes us to be better husbands and wives and children and co-workers and leaders. No matter if the world is falling apart, we are cling to the anchor of our souls. 